This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right. The book is called What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition Building. What is this? I don't know, but let me welcome to the show. (laughs) Emma DeBerry, welcome to The Karen Hunter Show. Hello. <laughs> I really liked your little pause <laughs> before you said the name. The title is a clickbaity title. I'm not going to lie. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. My sister from across the pond. Now, we're, we're having a, a, an, an American conversation, but I imagine it's a global conversation, right? And uh, because whiteness, whiteness is a political and uh, social structure designed for um, to, to stay in power. Right. It is it is a fairly new you you did a whole uh, dissertation on the the uh, coming of whiteness, like when did whiteness come? So let's let's talk about that, because I think even so-called white people don't understand that they're part of a political uh, assassination on on black folk. Like you're mm-hmm. part of something. Right. So so break that down, Dr. DeBerry. I would say it's a political. Actually, I would say it is a wholesale assassination on the on the world not just not just restricted to even just an assassination on black folk so whiteness you know we believe we're taught that race is just what we are it's just a biological truth but when you actually study whiteness and and blackness you come to realize, you come to see that the idea of white people, the notion that white that white people exist as a race, is so recent in human history. It's only first we it first appears in the in the seventeenth um, century, in the late late sixteen hundreds. Before that, you know when people say, okay, there's been there's, oh, oh there's been racism for millennia. That is emphatically untrue. The type of racism that um, exists today, you know, anti-blackness, white superiority, white supremacy, that type of racism has only existed since the since the 17th century. You Which know? coincides with the Portuguese heading to this continent and discovering Oh, gold, and there's all this <laughs> other, oh, black bodies. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We could, up, uh, up, uh, let's put them in the holes of the ship along with the gold and all the other things that we're getting from this continent that has everything. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, then, so it is, uh, sorry, go on. No, no, I'm just saying, there's a direct correlation between the transatlantic slave trade and this thing called whiteness. There is a direct correlation. It is no coincidence that the idea of a white race existing and from its earliest origins enshrined into that uh, notion of a white race is this idea of uh, alleged superiority. Whiteness is invented to enshrine to enshrine a notion of white superiority and to justify black subjugation. And it is no coincidence that it first is invented in the English colonial Caribbean. And there are two primary reasons why the notion is introduced and why it becomes codified into law. So what happens is it's introduced through um, a series of, 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 of legislation, uh, slave codes, that within these slave codes start to enshrine human rights for people who are racialized as white 
while denying any recourse to rights or justice for people who become racialized as black. And what it does is, face, okay, so before, before there's the concept of whiteness, there are of course people who look different to each other. There are of course people from Europe, there are of course people from Africa. They have different complexions, they have different phenotypes, they have different hair textures. But the idea that those physical features have any intrinsic, intrinsic um, meaning or value is what is introduced with this um, with this idea of a white race. And it happens for two main reasons. And as I said, it's no coincidence that it happens in the colonial Caribbean in the in the 1600s. Two things are happening. Uh, thousands and th at this stage, thousands. Uh, of course, it becomes millions. But at this stage, thousands of Africans, you know, are being kidnapped and forced to work on the plantations in these new colonies the vast and obscene wealth is being generated. In order to justify the brutal exploitation of these people, a narrative is needed. What the idea of a white race and a black race does is to create this natural order where white people, you know, are the natural lords and masters of everything. And blackness becomes associated with all of these inferior characteristics. And this justifies the, this is a form of dehumanization that justifies the enslavement that these economies are becoming so dependent on. But the other thing that it does, the other thing that's happening in that historical moment that is really interesting is specifically in Barbados, where we see it first, is first of all, we see these slave codes in Barbados, then we see them in Jamaica, and then shortly after we see them in Virginia, um, in, before the United States exists, actually, in what will become the United States. And then from Virginia, they travel, they, they are copied in other parts of North America. But what the necessity is to justify the enslavement of, 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 of Africans, of Black people that will be known as Black people. Um, but it's also because you're seeing in Barbados, in the early days of that colony, there were Irish indentured laborers. I take, uh, I, I make a point of saying indentured laborers because sometimes you hear this story that the Irish were slaves. The Irish were never slaves, but they were indentured laborers in the Caribbean. The Irish indentured laborers in the early days of the colony and the enslaved Africans in the very early days of the colony, before there's the notion of whiteness and blackness existing, actually saw the English landlords as a shared enemy. There were a series of uprisings where our indentured Irish and enslaved African came together and attacked the landlords. That was very, very threatening to the power structure. The second thing that the idea, the idea of race, whiteness and blackness did it dehumanized black people, but it also prevented those coalitions from emerging that were happening between um, oppressed Europeans, indentured Irish and enslaved Africans by creating this wedge, by creating the idea of race that prevented those type of coalitions from emerging. So the indentured Irish started to see their um, shared interests with other white people, even if they were white people who exploited them, you know? We're talking with Dr. Emma DeBerry, who I, I could talk with forever. Um, she's the author of Don't Touch My Hair, as well as What White People Can Do Next. And um, I, I, you know, I find this, you know, as, as infuriating as, you know, Bob Johnson offering himself up as the first black billionaire. This is a modern time. But everything that you're saying undermines, because Hannibal, if I'm remembering the Carthage, you know, Hannibal and the Moors, occupied Spain for how long? 
the Moors, the Black Amours, the Othello, those of you who are Shakespeare, uh, you know, they were the, in Europe, like, colonizing, basically. There was mm-hmm. a lot of miscegenation. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, there's no pure race of people, except the inbred British, sorry. Um, <laughs> I said it out loud, because yeah, they want to keep, you know, keep all of the wealth. They're like the Vatican, but they get to have... So anyway, um... You know, I, I have I to say, Brit- Britain, Britain is also a mongrel nation. Do not believe that. No, I know. I'm talking about the, <laughs> the, 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 the queens and kings, you know, the monarchy. Very embraced. Oh. But, yeah, I'm not talking about the Brits <laughs> as, as a whole. But, you know, where the power resides, where the power resides, you know, uh, Dr. Emma. I, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, thinking real. about it, it defies logic to have whites and blacks when you know Spain, Portuguese, Italy were all occupied by black people at some point, and there was a whole lot of miscegenation. How do you even justify that? But that's not what I want to talk about. 866-801-8255. I just, I find it fascinating to sit in this for a second that this whole thing was constructed so that whites and blacks, Irish, and you were born in Dublin, Ireland, by the way. Yeah, so I'm um, Irish. I was born and raised in Ireland. My mom's Irish. Um As soon as I was born, I actually moved to Atlanta. So I spent the first few years of my life in the States. But we moved back to Ireland, which was a short, sharp shock. Uh, Ireland in the 80s, being one of the only black people in the country. Honestly, there was Did you direct them to the black Madonna that they worship? Uh, There's a black Madonna. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know about her. Um, but yeah, that's why the Irish history is, um, you know, particularly interesting to me, but then also that, that tension between, um, when you grow up in Ireland and the, um, very strong kind of anti-imperial, anti-colonial, um, sense that, that, that permeates the culture in Ireland. But then when you look at the history of Irish Americans, um, particularly, you know, in the 1800s, from the 1840s, when the Irish are flooding into America, fleeing the famine, it's not a natural famine, it's a famine that is caused by British imperialism. You know, Ireland was colonized for, for, for 800 years. Um, so when you see that, when you have this moment where the Irish are flooding into, into the States, escaping the famine, you would imagine that there might be something of a natural sympathy between the Irish and, um, and Black Americans. But no, what you actually see is, uh, from there are some exceptions, but for the most part, a strong, strong investment into whiteness and white supremacy from the Irish, you know, to, to very much separate themselves from Black people and to enter the material spoils that are afforded by um by uh admission into whiteness because when the irish turn up they're not automatically um they're not automatically perceived as white you know they are perceived as as other and lesser than they do experience discrimination but they really you know invest in the in the project of 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 whiteness to their to their own material gain so i'm really interested in the state so i'm interested in that tension between you know being oppressor and 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 oppressed that that, that exists well that's classic and it's why they were they became the patty rollers which are now the police became an easy Mm -hmm. transition uh, but I'm always fascinated by who who gathered the people to make the plan. You know, like somebody had to gather, you know, we know that they're, you know, right now there's Bilderberg. I probably shouldn't say that out loud where they are 
planning for the next 50, 100 years of y'all, y'all's life. Uh, but, they, you know, and then they planned, they had a meeting, you know, and the, the, they, they divvied up Africa, right? You know, uh, King Leopold got this, these people, the Afrikaners or whatever, the Dutch got South Africa, the, the Brits got, yeah, the you know, Ghana. Africa. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They they had a meeting, though. We we know that they, they had a meeting where they- They had a meeting in Berlin. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Ironically. Mm. Hello, hello, Nazis. Um, the Berlin Conference. Yes. Who had the meeting to come up with whiteness? Like, can Ooh. we can we pinpoint, like, when was that meeting had, and who who led it? Because that so person should be I, immortalized right next to Hitler. I don't know. I you know I I would imagine that when it was first in so basically it's 1661 is the first is the first time we see it written in written into law um and then the next time we see it in law it, we see it in law then in, in marriage in, in, oh god i always say this wrong we always want to say maryland but i feel you guys say Mar- maryland maryland yes, maryland. yes. <laughs> say it however you want to we'll follow your lead too made up names um, <laughs> so you see whiteness um in uh ri- written into law there in again the late 1600s, and it's actually to stop um, miscegenation, as it's called. And then the next time you see it is in Virginia through this, yeah, through this series of, of slave codes. And I think what happens is these slave codes are introduced in different parts of the Americas. And somebody in, a ne- in another colony will be like, oh, they're working really well. That's a great idea. Why don't we introduce those slave codes here as well? You know, these ones that like just completely ensure that the people who are, who are racialized as black people of African descent, you know, have no protection or rights under law. So I don't know if it starts off as a master plan. I think it happens in one place. It works really well and it's effective and it spreads. The idea spreads like wildfire. I say like as a meme, whiteness is like, you know, unparalleled in terms of success. Mm. You know what's crazy about that is... Oh, hi. Uh, <laughs> hi. Oh, uh, Drew McCaskill, Dr. Emma Debiri. <laughs> Dr. Debiri, uh, when, you're, when you're talking, it makes me think about how how history just repeats itself, right? Like one of the things that I've always said is that one of the, that one of the things that always has baffled me is uh, poor white Republicans, right? Like that people would be so invested in whiteness that they would vote against their own self-interest, right? Because they feel like whiteness is going to always be the air cover they need regardless, even if it's not for them, for the next generation. Mm-hmm. But you also see exactly what you just said in terms of how oh, these um, anti-voting laws, they worked in Georgia. Let's take those exact same, those exact same words and enter them to legislation in Texas and in, and in Wisconsin and in these other places. When we think about how history repeats itself and, and this whole idea of whiteness is really just a rinse and repeat series mm-hmm. of, of strategies, what are the strategies that you've seen as you're looking from, even if it's just from the anthropological lens, that where whiteness is upended or thwarted? Are there any places in history where you see it's clearly thwarted, that strategy is thwarted, so that we can replicate that? <laughs> so I think I've, I think I've seen attempts 
maybe at doing that, but those attempts, you know, will, those attempts will be thwarted. I think what you just said about it being rinse and repeat, um, that really highlights what, and that, that's such a great example. Um, and it really highlights the necessity of knowing history. So we can see, oh, this pattern is re-emerging. This is doing, this is them doing that same old shit that they've been doing so successfully for centuries, you know? And if you know the history, you have a, a greater understanding, you have a greater understanding of, of, of what it is that is happening. So I think you're better positioned to create, you know, challenges to it. But one of the things that I do think is effective is well, the book is called From Allyship to Coalition, because I reject the notion of allyship as it currently is expressed in kind of liberal, mainstream, anti-racism. I find it problematic for all sorts of reasons that I expand on in the book. But coalition, to me, solidarity is subversive. What I say about allyship is that allyship offers charity at the expense of solidarity. It is mm. solidarity that is that is subversive. Division actually isn't subversive. Divi race was created to ensure division. When you look at um, somebody like Fred Hampton, who I talk about in the book, and the fact that you know, in the 1960s, he had the vision to, to, to see, to, to create this rainbow coalition, you know, between the Black Panthers, the Young Patriots, and the Young Lords. Um, the fact that he could attempt to work in coalition with these Southern disenfranchised whites who had like the confederate flag as their as their symbol you know they seem like very very unlikely bedfellows but he he could see that while of course they do not the young patriots did not experience racism they're white people they did experience police brutality and they did experience diminished life opportunities as a result of the inequalities perpetuated by capitalism so by identifying you know those shared goals I, the idea was to build this coalition that brings on board so many people who identify shared interests that you can create a mass movement that, you know, that encompasses so many people that it cannot be ignored, you know? So I, I really think solidarity is subversive. If you're not willing to be John Brown as a white person, and I'm not saying that you need to plan a whole ass and, uh, you know, uprising, but that needs to be your energy because that's what coalition looks like. That's what true, true uh, putting down that whiteness looks like. Um, then we don't want to hear from you. What white people can do next. Can you stick around, Dr. Dabiri, please? I can stick around, okay, yeah, sure. Okay, good, because I, I have a billion and one more questions for you. You're fascinating and amazing. 866-801-8255. If you guys have questions or comments, uh, the book is What White People Can Do Next. And also, Don't Touch My Hair, which also is uh, fascinating, because you, you know, y'all know better. Don't touch our hands. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition. The author is Dr. Emma Dabiri. She's also a professor at SOAS, which stands for... <laughs> You're going to put me on blast. It was the School of Oriental and African studies yes and as you pointed out was is the name not problematic so i was just you know what it's actually it, it, now it just uses the acronym it's actually stopped 
using, I think in the past maybe two or three years, it stopped using uh, what it stands for, but it did stand for School of Oriental and African Studies. And the reason was, even though it's a radical institution, it's quite a radical institution, it was produced by a lot of radicals, um, it was first established in 1916 and its origins, the reason it teaches all of these African languages, the reason it teaches all of these Asian languages is, was in order to train English, British colonial officers to be able to speak the local native languages so that they could go forth and colonize the world. So it was very much a, um, the, apparat the apparatus of empire. The notion of colonization. And again, I want to go back, like who sat in the room and said, hmm, we got nothing but like dry potatoes and no spices and we don't brush our teeth or bathe. Let's, uh, let's, let's go where there's other places and let's not just go there. Let's take over. Like, mm -hmm. because we mm -hmm. know Africans were sailing the ocean blue way before Columbus. We know that because there's evidence of them in the, on the hieroglyphs that there's been an exchange and there are pyramids in Mexico and in, in, in different places. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, there's, and also there's interaction between China and Africa, between India and Africa that predates, you know, any European um, incursion into Africa. This conceit that everybody is only in contact since European expansion is just, you know, so, so Eurocentric. Um, there, there was much exchange and um, movement, movement, and also with Africa. I taught African studies. I've, I've actually just um, left SOAS. I'm, I'm still there as a research associate, but I'm not teaching there anymore. But I taught African studies for a really long time, and there is actually like a pre. There's an African pre pre colonial modernity that never really gets engaged with you know where Africa was in conversation with the the, the, the rest of the world there's an African pre-colonial cosmopolitanism you know that has nothing to do necessarily with Europe but has to do with African countries well they weren't countries then because they're European inventions but has to do with 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 African people and um, their exchanges with the Arab world with India with China you know Doctor, can you talk a little bit about at what point does in the colonization strategy is religion and Christianity infused? Because that is such an integral part of how this evil gets accomplished is yeah. the yeah. infusion of Christianity and religion into this master strategy. Yeah, big time. So there's the colonization, you know, so first of all, again, like I find Ireland really interesting because Ireland is kind of the laboratory for English colonialism. It starts in Ireland and then from there you see the kind of appropriate, actually it starts with the English poor. The elites kind of appropriate the land from the English poor through this uh, set of enclosures acts that goes on for centuries. Then they do it in Ireland, refine it. Then they do it in, in the Americas, you know? And one of the things that justify, and it comes to, and obviously Africa and Asia are colonized, but that is in the colonization of Africa starts actually quite late. 
in West Africa, certainly. It's more from kind of 1850 onwards. Africa is already being robbed and exploited, but that is like, that is um, the extraction of people. Once slavery is abolished and becomes no longer the most financially um, lucrative system, they actually start to colonize the, the, the continent. But how Christianity fits into it is in the Americas, one of the things that justifies taking the land from the native people is um, actually something I talk about in, oh, this is the English, this is the English cover of the book, which is actually like diff very different to the, to the US one. But one of the things that I talk about in um, what white people can do next is this idea of improvement and improvement. Um, we have, so we have, we still have the world, the words today, but its origins are um, related to making something more financially um fine to making something more financially uh viable. Forth forthcoming viable thank you and specifically land and so you have people like john locke the english mm. philosopher also a, a staunch advocate of um slavery and actually involved in a lot of this kind of very early anti-black legislation um who who uh promote this idea of improvement of the land and the idea that the native uh, the native um people in, in america do not um use the land in an economically productive way and so it is actually against god's will and so god mm. wants God wants Christians who use the land in a productive way to actually to own the land and to use the land. So that's a really, that is a really strong early um, example we see of how Christianity is weaponized to justify theft. When you look at the colonization of Africa, it's defined by three C's. The three things they're bringing to Africa are allegedly um, civilization, commerce, and Christianity. So again, this idea of we are bringing Christianity, we're actually doing you a favor. We're taking your land, we're doing you a favor because this is what Christianity dictates. We're enslaving you, we're taking your land, but we're doing you a favor because we're bringing you Christianity and you're converting to Christianity. So we are doing God's work and we're helping you. You should be grateful. And so then, yeah, and Christianity is central. It, and then they codify it with movies like Tarzan, series like yeah. Tarzan, right? Yeah. And all of the cannibal type things and all this is even before Birth of a Nation. Right. Because Birth of a Nation mm -hmm. had to then, you know, change the trajectory for those folks who were freed and now gaining political power who all mm -hmm. showed up in beautiful suits. And, you know, they 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 were elegant and educated. And then they show them with their shoes off, eating watermelon and fried chicken in a movie. Yeah. So then you have mm -hmm. to use your media apparatus and your in your propaganda machines to then justify this as well because most people were illiterate so you're now spreading spreading the gospel uh in mm -hmm. these books called the bible mm -hmm. and literature and then movies oh this is crazy <sighs> yeah yeah absolutely and the, and, and also you see the, the the demonization of of african um spiritual systems or the, the the indigenous religions you know I and mean, let me not even call yeah the indigenous spiritual systems which become dismissed not only as primitive but also as um you know Evil devil, and where, yeah, and devil exactly exactly and you have deities who are reimagined as satanic when that is not 
what they are at all. Um, so yes, just this 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 reimagining and then teaching the people themselves in, in, in the in the countries that are colonized that everything that existed previously was you know primitive and barbaric and we came and we civilized you. All right, what what's the takeaway for uh, and who's going to read this book? Do you, you hope white people read this book or is this for 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 black folk? So. Obviously, the, the name <laughs> suggests a particular demographic, um, but I, 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 I talk about my reasons for, for choosing the particular name that I did. So I would, yes, it, I would like white people to read it, but there is also a lot of stuff for black people in there as well. You know, I'm drawing on, um, like I said, I taught African studies for a long time. I'm drawing on all that body of knowledge. I'm trying to think of, you know, uh, non-eurocentric ways and afrocentric ways about approaching um the problems about race and anti-racism and thinking about anti-racism from another from, from other perspectives from 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 other world views that are informed by um by by, by african cultures and also I, I draw a lot on you know the black radical tradition um i feel deeply indebted to so many specifically black american scholars intellectuals and activists whose work you know you know is just is just un, unparalleled and people whose i think with social media so it, we have, sorry we have to go to break. no we have to go to break okay. and they're going to cut us off all right i'm gonna make, I'm, I'm asking you to stick around Doctor, please, the beery. Uh, just one more segment. It's the Karen at the show. Drew sticking around. We'll be right back. Okay, I was yeah. I I know when you took a breath, I was like, okay, I can't rap. So <laughs> so so we come back. What I want is just a prescription for any white person or anybody that has white people in their lives. How do we get them to stop? Uh, your spouse is uh, Caucasian or black? <laughs> Caucasian. Yep. So how does that? How does that? <laughs> huh? How does that? How does? How does that? So is is your is your your spouse has to be uh, part of the coalition then? Uh, yeah. I mean, so my 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 vision of the coalition is that like it encompasses people like across across racial yeah like like fred hampton that was a great example but i'm just, I'm just <laughs> sometimes though you know and i you know I, I i feel like you know the it's necessary you know i every day i struggle with this because we're in such dire straits in terms of the racial climate in this world at the same time most people if you just are chilling with them this race thing is not a thing it's like it, it it's almost like we're forced into this the space that we shouldn't even be in, which is what made Fred Hampton so dangerous, which is why they had to kill him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you tread on these, in these spaces and you're like, how do I bring people together at the same time, empower the people who have been denigrated and destroyed at the same time, not insult the folk who feel wedded to this thing called whiteness. And, you know, even though it's not a thing and I'm not talking about you, if you're not, you know, it's, it's such a, let's talk about it when we come back. All right. Yeah. And I won't yeah, ask yeah. you about your spouse on the air. That's your business. Oh no, it's, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> It's not a secret. It's oh. not a secret. As I say to him, though, I'm like, if I lived in America, I probably. <laughs> okay, there's 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 a very small black population here <laughs> where I live. I'm like, if I lived in America, I would probably have a black husband. <laughs> I always say that to him. Hilarious. Good. He should be on his P's and Q's. 
to be on his toes. Yes. You know, know that you you got options. <laughs> I love it. All right, we'll be back in uh, thirty about a minute. All right. So, what are you drinking, Drew? What's that red beverage? Um, Leftover is... from Juneteenth. It... <laughs> no, it's water. I actually put water in this Tezo bottle, but I put like a little bit of like caffeinated flavor in it because I still have about two hours of LinkedIn work to do oh, when we get off right. air. Right. So Thank I'm you. keeping my right. I'm keeping my levels <laughs> up, my energy high. You know right. what I'm saying? I appreciate that. Um, I just saw your assistant walk by. <laughs> yes. The little four-legged assistant. <laughs> my four-legged assistant. Listen, in the pandemic, I, I have become such a dog person. This dog does not leave my side. Like I could be working in my office and he does not leave the office. The door is open. He does not leave the office until I leave the office. I get up on Saturday morning. I'll come downstairs, make a cup of coffee. And he walks into the office like, yo, you turning the computer on? What's up, dog? Like, it's time to go make that make this money. And I'll be like, nah, man. Nah, buddy. Like, today is Saturday. Let's go back upstairs. Watch some. Watch oh, there he is. He's about. Yeah. Hey, boo-boo. Yeah. Oh, my God. He's so cute. I can't deal. He's got a little old man. Tech Tuesday is brought to you by Dell. For your small business needs, call Dell Technologies Advisors today at 877-ASK-DELL. Black, 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 I'm black, black, my thoughts so black, 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 I'm black, my skin is so black, I'm rocking all black, everything is black. Rams on this black, wheels black, black, this black, black, I'm black, 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 I feel like Trayvon with this black hoodie on, Huey P. Newton, black revolution. With a new beyond queen and some illegal aliens. I got a black fist barred up, and it ain't just me, it's all us. 400 years of oppression, I'm about to give me that black Tesla. Black skid marks on the pavement, cops wanna see me in a black cage. Black on black on black, Master Juba with the tap dance, Gucci with the dapper dance. Tell them kiss my black. Hey, welcome back. Hottest show in the galaxy. We are here on Sirius XM Urban View, where talk empowers and becomes action. Dr. Emma DeBerry is gracious enough to stick around. I so appreciate you. The book is called What White People Can Do Next from Allyship to Coalition. Drew McCaskill is here as well. And I asked you a question off mic that I'm going to bring on mic. Um, those of us, I struggle every day because I believe that people have more in common than they do differences. And the struggle is, you know, how do I bring people together at the same time empower folk who have been uh, oppressed by a system that was designed to oppress them at the same time, not make people feel guilty and bad, but yeah, you're mm -hmm. tied to this whiteness. And so maybe you should feel guilty and bad. I don't know. How do mm -hmm. we navigate these spaces to get to a place of freedom for everybody and, and happiness and peace for everybody? I think honesty, like in what white people can do next, I have, um, I should know this off the top of my head, but I do not. I have maybe like eight, it's divided into eight or nine different like headings as to what needs to happen. And the first one is understanding coalition, but the second one is stop the denial. So we really have to have a, like a truthful um, reckoning and just base level understanding of the fact that whiteness was invented and the work that whiteness was invented to do, which was to enshrine this idea of white superiority and to, to, to justify the subjugation of black people. We have to just have that, you cannot react to that history with this like 
violent denial. You know, that has to be the base level. But with that being said, I think my fourth or fifth heading is abandoned guilt because I also don't feel that people are... So you are not responsible for what your ancestors did, but you are responsible for what you do. So you don't need to, you don't need to feel, we have been born into this system. It's something that's bequeathed to us centuries before we were born. So we can't feel guilty for that, but you can't feel guilty about what you do. You have responsibility for what you do. So there's no point, you know, this kind of liberal hand-wringing and self-flagellation and allyship that comes from a place of trying to assuage your guilt or trying to make you feel better that's the you know action that is coming from that motivation is about making you feel better it's not about doing the necessary work that needs to happen to change things in the way they so urgently need to be changed so stopping the denial but also abandoning guilt you know i think are two things that are key the, the the climate right now around uh folks being triggered by people wanting to correct history is is in that space of denial is so baffling to me that people rather hold on to a myth than a lie if mm -hmm. it means that they have to give up the myth and a lie which means mm -hmm. you have to now what be a regular person and live on your merits as a human being as opposed to something that's fabricated it's, it's yeah it well so something that Kathleen Cleaver, obviously former Black Panther um, professor, uh, esteemed academic, says is that one of the re and I a, a quote that I take uh, the, that I use in the book. Um, she says that one of the reasons that our attempts at um, you know kind of anti-racism quite consistently fail is because we so whiteness has anti-black functions but it also our our responses to anti-racism fail to fully engage with the deep psychological attachments that people that many people racialized as white also have to their whiteness so you know we have to also engage with that and chastising people like telling people to check their privilege you know while in an ideal world, yes, that is what should happen. That narrative doesn't necessarily fully engage with the deep psychological investment lots of people have in their whiteness. And if you think about the fact that whiteness was spread, um, you know, and took off like wildfire, this really popular concept was spread through showing people that their life was materially improved via the black people who they now were kind of like you know had the power of life and death over and who even if they were poor they were still really privileged compared compared to uh, compared to black people when you think that's how whiteness was spread and it's had centuries you know to really be embedded and to be for people to internalize how are you going to undo that centuries of socialization by by chastising people about their telling people to check their privilege that is not a compelling or strong enough narrative to undo those centuries of investment that people have in whiteness where they were shown that their lives would materially improve by um becoming white you know so it's like how do you yeah it's like almost like how do you go from telling people generationally you're like a god 
to saying you need to now give up your deity status, right? Like, because that's essentially what whiteness, the that's what the propaganda of whiteness is, is that you are gods amongst other men. That's why amongst other, other people, that's why you can take their lives and it's okay. That's why you can shepherd them like cattle. That's why you can work them like, like you own them, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you're gods amongst other humans and you have to give up your God status. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of a psychological and emotional attachment to deity status, right? Like you have <laughs> to think real. about what that really means mm -hmm. that we're asking people to give up. It's not just privilege. It's like, you got to stop. You no longer have God status, mm -hmm, the ability mm -hmm. to, of life and death in your hands of other people. So as you're saying That's that, Drew, one. so as you're saying that, Dr. DeBerry, how do you disincentivize or give somebody an incentive to give that up? What is the incentive to give that up? So what I, what I talk about in the book is I try and create a compelling counter narrative and show that how, and okay, also I have to, I have to re reiterate that I'm writing from outside America and while whiteness is global and while white superiority, while it's the English, you know, English, whilst the English that invented whiteness, but they invented it in their, in their American colonies. Um, the investment in whiteness is different in the UK and Ireland, between the UK and Ireland, and it's very different again to how it, to, to what it is in the United States. And I think like what we tend to do in this part of the world is cut and paste um, the American situation and impose it here where we have different histories and we have actually different social realities like this so america obviously is like you know a settler colony that is founded on white supremacy from white supremacy is older than the united even before the united states you know so i do think there's a different level of investment into whiteness in in different white countries, you know? So we have to we have to take that on board. And I'm writing from outside of the States. Um, so I think that, I think it's good. I think in America that that whiteness being so central to so many people's identity is more, in, operates in different ways, is more entrenched than it might be in other parts, in other parts of the world. But with that being said, I try and create a compelling narrative that shows that whiteness, while there are, you know, material advantages attached um, to inclusion into whiteness, whiteness as a system, whiteness as a modus operandi is one that is like actually deeply destructive to the world. And I link the, I link the anti-racism, uh, movement currently to uh, the, the the struggle for racial justice to the struggle for environmental justice and I keep I make that link of between race and capitalism you know race and capitalism are siblings when the white race is invented this is at the kind of early this is at the the, the point of the early origins of the form of global capitalism that we live under today that has its um, you know, origins with the transatlantic slave trade. And I make the links between whiteness, capitalism, and environmental degradation and show that it, it's whiteness is something that will destroy 
the world, you know, our, 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 our current environmental crisis is, is linked to whiteness as an extractive, exploitative system that exploits human beings, black people, racialized others, and, and some people racialized as white, but it also exploits the very the resources of, of, of the earth, the very world that we live in. It's a system that is unsustainable. And what people who are racialized as white should be as keen to um, remove themselves from its pernicious grip. So I present whiteness, you know, as a um, as something that is much more than just a race, but as an extractive and exploitative system that you know the world cannot live under for much longer. We're seeing the so make America great again. Um, those folks that stormed the Capitol understood something, that they are fighting for the, the very thing that this country was founded on. Interesting. Um, we're going to keep talking, you and I, uh, and, and thank you for, you know, answering the other call that I put out to you uh, because these conversations must be had. Emma Dabiri, please follow her. Emma, D-A-B-I-R-I on the Twitters, and the book is What White People Can Do Next from Allyship to Coalition. You have been amazing today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.